Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Well, it's a great uh, joy to, to get to be here with you all today and to see some familiar faces, and David and Bree and Tori today, um, who are down at uh, Bloomington for their, their college years, and uh, Ransford, who got sick this morning, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, couldn't make it today, but Ransford and Julia were also uh, with us back in the day as well, and so it's great to be here. I want to just encourage you, what a great gift you're giving uh, Dwayne with this time of, of rest, a season of rest. Uh, I had a sabbatical last summer. Uh, it was incredibly uh, just a time of great renewal and precious time with my family. My kids are getting a lot older than uh, Dwayne's kids are these days, but uh, but it was a, just a great, sweet time. And, and I want you to also know that it's not just a gift you're giving him, it's a gift you're also giving yourself, because healthy pastors can kind of also help the church be healthy as well. And so I uh, just want to encourage you in that. Dwayne's a good friend, uh, and uh, just love him dearly. And I, I, I know they're doing, doing well and, and working through some good things this, this summer. And I'm sure he'll be excited to be back with you here soon. Uh, last summer when I was on sabbatical, he preached for me, uh, for our church down in uh, Bloomington. And, uh, and people in my church are still talking about his sermon uh, now. Like, it was like the most impactful sermon of the summer. Uh, there, there are a lot of folks who just really love that. And I'm not going to promise you that today. It's probably not going to happen for you. You won't probably be talking about this sermon, maybe even after this morning. But, uh, but yeah, what a gift. Well, yeah, like I said, my name's Chris. Uh, married to my wife, Crystal. We have three kids, uh, Seth, Leah, and Levi. Seth's 21. He's in Brazil right now for a month on his own. Uh, because he met a, a woman down there on our spring break trip who's from Brazil. And so that's exciting uh, in our life. Uh, my daughter Leah's uh, almost 19, and my youngest son Levi is uh, 15. So uh, that means I'm old. And so I'm, I'm here with you today. Last month, Crystal and I celebrated our 23rd wedding anniversary. Uh, and we marked the occasion uh, with kind of a delayed uh, 20th anniversary trip. Uh, our 20th anniversary, if you're counting was in the year 2020. Uh, so we didn't do anything that cool. We stayed at this really, uh, you know, not so great hotel in downtown Bloomington because even the nice hotels weren't open yet then. Uh, so, you know, three years later, finishing up the Jordan year, uh, we, we had a great trip to St. Lucia. Uh, it was incredible. We had never done a trip like that. When we got married, we had nothing to go on any fancy honeymoon. So it was a, it was a really great gift. We're, we're far from perfect folks. And, you know, we... Uh, we certainly don't have a perfect marriage, but I feel incredibly blessed to tell you that after 23 years, she's still my best friend, a person that I want to spend my days and time with more than anyone else, uh, the, the person that I want to you know, have fun with, laugh with, cry with, all those things. And God has used her and her love in my life to show me a lot of the Father's love, the goodness of God's love and His grace in my life. He's used her to confront me in love, to encourage me. And remind me again and again of how much God loves me. Right? Marriage is not easy. And, and sadly, at this point in our lives, we've, we've seen uh, more than a few of our friends' marriages really struggle. Uh, some even come to an end. And, and it can be easy to kind of fall into a relationship where you simply kind of take one another for granted. And, and then apathy begins to set in. And you start just kind of going through the motions, but your, your heart isn't in it. 
And one of the keys, I think, for us has been this practice of just being really intentional in our time together, being intentional to regularly remind one another of our love for each other, the things that we love about each other, the ways that we're experiencing each other's love day by day, um, what we're thankful for in each other, all those kind of things. Remembering our love has been a key to truly enjoying our marriage and our life together. And, and in the book of Malachi, at the start of the book of Malachi, that's really at the heart of what we see. Uh, God's people in this book, in this time period, have grown apathetic in their relationship with God. All right, they're going through the motions half-heartedly. They have forgotten and they doubt God's love for them. But what they need more than anything is to push past the apathy to true affection, is to remember God's love for them. That's what you see in Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. I invite you, invite you to turn there in your Bibles, and if you would, uh, stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Malachi chapter 1, uh, 1 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this time just to gather together, to, to sit under your word, to encourage one another and remind one another of your love for us. Lord, I pray that you'd open all of our hearts in this room, in this space, to see, to hear, to feel the depth of your love for each of us, individually and collectively as your people. Lord, would you grip us with your love in a way that, that moves us beyond just going through the motions of life and faith, but moves us to true affection for you, to living passionately for you in every way possible. I pray this all in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. So as we walk through this passage, we're going to talk about the problem of apathy, the cure for apathy, and, and we'll discuss a, the strategy for fighting apathy. First, let's consider the problem of apathy. It's helpful, you know, if, you know, I don't think you guys have been studying Malachi this summer. We're working through a series on Malachi right now. But uh, uh, to get a little background context for what's happening here in the world of Malachi, the book of Malachi is a prophetic book. Uh, that was written sometime after the return from exile in Babylon. Uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, if you're familiar with them, are more the historical accounts of that period of return from exile. And it's clear from the context here in this book that, that it was written at least after the temple had been rebuilt after that period of return from exile. So it's safe to say that Ezra and Nehemiah were contemporaries of Malachi the prophet. And that's just about the extent of what we know about the person Malachi, right? Other than the fact that his name literally translates to mean my messenger. But the focus of this book is not on the messenger, but on the message. 
The people of God had been carried off into exile in those years uh, for their idolatry and their rebellion against God, breaking the covenant with God. But then after a time of discipline, the people returned from exile. God brought them back to rebuild the destroyed city of Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls around the city. But already, after they've come back, the people are already again growing cynical. Serving God feels like drudgery. Right? And meanwhile, it seems like to the people of God at this time that all these rebellious people living around them are the ones who are enjoying the blessings that, that they were promised. Like things are going well for them, but not so great for us. God seemed absent to them. And so they started neglecting major aspects of proper worship that God had commanded them in the Old Covenant. The general attitude of the people of God at this point in time seems to be, if God doesn't care, why should we? Why should we bother? Right? That's apathy. That's apathy. And as a result, all morality seems to kind of be spiraling out and down into darker and darker places. Adultery, divorce, deceit, fraud, sorcery are all running rampant. And much of the corruption is coming from the priests of God, the, the pastors, if you will, of God themselves. This is the situation that the Malachi finds himself in and speaks to. And Malachi, of course, is the final book in the Old Testament, and it closes out the Old Testament canon with, with God addressing his people in their apathy and calling them out of it, calling them from apathy to affection as they wait for the coming Messiah. And through Malachi, you read through the rest of the book, you're going to see God calling his people out of fake and empty worship back to true, passionate, affectionate worship. He's going to call them out of adultery and divorce and intermarriage with pagan wives to honor the covenant of marriage in equally yoked, God-honoring marriages. He will call the priests to turn from corruption back to serving the people and pointing them to the God who loves them. He'll call the people to pursue justice with faithful service and, and gracious integrity. He'll call them to stop robbing God by failing to give as they should and to instead give generously and faithfully. In all of it, he's calling them out of apathy to affection. But apathy is, a, is an interesting problem. Uh, as one author kind of describes it, he says, uh, as a sin, apathy is unique and yet not unique. As a misdirection of our attention and affection, it is the same as many other sins. But as a passive-aggressive hostility to God, it is a strange bird. Apathy is not the hostility of shaking a fist, but of a gaping yawn. And when you think about it, what hurts more? Someone's anger or someone's indifference toward you. The lack of care and concern is, is something we can easily fall into if we are not intentional. We see one of the easy path, pathways into apathy as it concerns our attitude toward God right here in these verses. The people's response to God's declaration of his love for them is this. How have you loved us? Right? You say you love us, God? How? I don't see it. It shows their cards right away. In that response, they give away that they are doubting God's love for them. A clear pathway to apathy. 
Not the only pathway to be sure, but a common one. Forgetting and doubting the love of God. And when you doubt that God cares, it becomes easy to stop caring much yourself. If you think God doesn't care, or even more, if you think that God doesn't love you, that instead he's against you, he's out to get you, it's going to have a very serious impact on your life. It's going to lead to, at best, this sort of detached, apathetic, kind of going through the motions, or possibly despair, or some kind of all-out rebellion against him, all of which are going to have serious negative impacts on your life. Apathy in a marriage, right, can, can lead to mindless coexisting at best, right? We're just kind of roommates, ships passing in the night, just interacting barely, just existing together. Or, or just taking each other for granted. But at worst, apathy in a marriage deteriorates to chasing after love somewhere else, destroying the marriage altogether. In our relationship with God, it's, it's similar. It's very similar. Apathy leads us to going through the motions, right? We go to church because that's, that's what we're supposed to do. So, so we're, here we are. We're, go, we're going to church, right? We're, we're doing the things we're supposed to do. Well, we're supposed to serve, so we're going to serve, but we're going to do so mindlessly, half-heartedly. But it can also lead to resentment and chasing after what we can only find in God elsewhere. If we doubt God's love for us, that's going to have a real impact on our lives. I'll quote uh, Uche Enezor once again. He says, A man tends to live up to his self-image, forgiven or condemned, righteous or filthy. How we perceive ourselves makes all the difference in the world. That's a little bit on the problem of apathy. But, but let's also talk about the cure for apathy that the text points us to here. Put simply, the cure for apathy is God's love it's God's love. It's not just a random occurrence here that the very first thing that God speaks through the prophet Malachi is this. I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you, says the Lord. Now, there are, there are a number of issues we, we, we breezed over, though. There's a number of very serious things that are going on that God needs to address in his people. But he begins with, I love you. I love you. God begins by declaring his unchanging and enduring love for his people. The actual tense of that verb, love, in the original language carries with it the meaning of this. I have always loved you and will continue to always love you, says the Lord. In other words, while you may have forgotten or you may be doubting God's love for you, God remembers and he continues to always love you. God not only declares his love for his people, he also seeks to answer their doubts with evidence of his love. The chief evidence being his divine election of Israel as his chosen people. He says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now that sounds a little harsh, especially if you're Esau, right? Um, it sounds a little harsh, but, but it's better to understand the words love and hate in that sentence in their covenantal sense, at, which is chosen and not chosen. Right, because God chose Jacob to fulfill the covenant that he made with Abraham. And back in Genesis 12, God loved Jacob. And since God did not choose Esau, God hated him. 
We're getting into that, that doctrine of election a little bit, and uh, as a guest preacher, I'm not going to get too deep into that, because uh, I'll let your pastors handle that with you. But, but while that doctrine stirs up a lot of controversy for some, God is employing it here as a way to reassure his people of his unconditional love for them. Because the truth is, God's choosing of Jacob over Esau had absolutely nothing to do with anything other than God's sovereign will. He didn't choose Jacob because Jacob was better or nicer. Go back and read Genesis. He wasn't. Uh, God chose Abraham out of all the people in the world to make a covenant with. And God chose Jacob over his older brother Esau to continue to work out that covenant. God chose the Israelites over all of the other nations of the world at that time to be his chosen people. But he did not choose them based on any merit of their own. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. One commentator on the book of Malachi wrote, God does not grade on a curve. If he did, Esau might have passed. Jacob, on the other hand, certainly would have failed. As he conned his father into placing the blessing on him rather than on his older brother, according to the cultural traditions, Esau de deserved God's blessing. Yet God does not bestow grace on those who seem to deserve it. If one's righteousness were the condition for God's grace, no one would enter the kingdom. So when God says this through the prophet, he's saying to the people, you have done nothing to deserve it. You, you have done nothing to earn it, but I have chosen you. I love you. You are my people. And God further substantiates his love for his people by speaking of what he's caused to happen to the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. And this may sound mean and cruel to our ears, but you need to understand the Edomites reject, rejoiced at the destruction of Jerusalem. They rejoiced at the people of God being taken away captive into exile. They exploited Israel's vulnerability for their own gain in some very extremely wicked and perverse ways. And God displays his love for his people here in the justice that he brings upon their enemies. He causes their country, the Edomites' country, to become desolate. And God assures his people that even if things are looking up for the Edomites now, you think they're, they're getting better, they're making plans to rebuild, that's fine, God says. I will tear down whatever they build. They will forever be the wicked country, the people the Lord is angry with forever. The people of God will see God carrying out this justice on their enemies, and they will declare, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. The point of all of this is to declare to us that the cure for apathy is remembering the love of God. When you or I are troubled uh, to the point that we would ask, how, how do I know that God even loves me? Like, how do I know? Just as it was in Malachi's day, the answer is found in a historical event. God points the people here in Malachi's day to his choosing of Jacob over Esau. He points his people back to the exodus and delivering them out of slavery. He points them back to the return from exile. See, I brought you out of that captivity once again because I love you, 
But he points us, friends, to the person and work of Jesus Christ, the finished work of his cross. Jesus is the ultimate display of God's sovereign love for us. When we were caught up in sin, nothing in us that deserved his love, nothing in us that could possibly save ourselves, we were alienated from God, dead in our sins, spiritually blind, morally bankrupt. But God loves us, and he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live and die and rise to rescue us. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Here is God's sovereign declaration of love for us. Love that is meant to humble us. To remove any, any room for our boasting. To take away any sense of entitlement. Kill our pride. And expose the foolishness of self-reliance. It's all His love we are nothing, and we have nothing apart from Jesus. He is our everything, and we have nothing to contribute, nothing in us that he should want us, right? And yet, he loved us so. He loved us so. This is the cure for apathy, that, the apathy that cripples us. Consider his love. Remember his love. He's the father that runs out to meet you like the, the father in the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus tells in Luke 15. He, he, he's, this, he's that father. We come stumbling back to him, hoping for some way to pay off our debt, that he'll give us some lesser status just so we can get a little closer. And Jesus comes running before we even get there. He comes running out to us. He puts on the royal robe on us. He puts a ring on our finger. He embraces us. He, he calls us his own and orders that a feast be held immediately to welcome us home. This is the love of God for you, for me, for us. Remembering this love is the cure for our apathy. It, it's the love that will not let us go, as the great hymn says and declares Remembering this love, centering ourselves on this love. This is the cure for our apathy. And this points us to the strategy for fighting apathy as well. Understanding the problem and knowing the cure can empower us to lean into a strategy for fighting apathy in our relationship with God. If the cure for apathy is remembering God's love, then we must regularly take time, intentional time, to recount the ways that he has loved us. And that starts first, and obviously, with Jesus, the Sunday school answer, right? His life, his death, his resurrection, to rescue us from sin and death, the sin and death that we deserve. But there's certainly more ways that he has personally expressed his love in your life. Think about how, how did he make known to you the love of Christ? How did God make known the love of Christ to you in your life? Did he place you in a Christian home? with godly parents who raised you in the church, pouring the gospel into your lives day by day through those years, knowing that incredible grace and truth 
Friends, if that's true for you, oh, how he has left you. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you didn't grow up in a Christian home. Right? And yet he sent friends and people into your life who faithfully shared the hope of Jesus with you. You think back on that? Oh, how he has loved you. How has he shown his love to you in your life with him? How has he given you the opposite of what you deserve? Those times when your sin was exposed, and yet it was met with grace, with kindness, with the opposite of what you deserve? Oh, how he has loved you. How has he showered you with his love and shown you favor in your life? Every good and perfect gift, James tells us, comes from, from him. You know, a few months ago, I couldn't stand up here and tell you this. But at this point, all three of my children profess faith in the Lord, right? And some of that's not my story to say, um, but it's not because of anything I've done either. And sometimes I've probably been an obstacle in the way of God's work because I wanted to be the Holy Spirit for my children in a lot of ways. It's all of His grace. What is He doing in your life? How is He working in your life? How, how are you seeing His love at work in your life? Um, I was at the, uh, the lead pastor and wives retreat for our network uh, back in, uh, in May, and a pastor that came and spoke to us was Zach Eswine, a pastor in St. Louis, a pastor I admire dearly, um, who also has like a few couples from Redeemer. Like we're just like a AAA affiliate for like every other church, and we get these college students and get to have them for a few years and then send them off to other places. It's a, it's a blessing though. But Zach is talking, Zach, if you don't know him, he has uh, three older children uh, whose ages kind of range from like the middle 20s down to like 18. The Lord has also blessed him with a, a four-year-old little boy now, and uh, his little boy named Noah. And he was talking in some of the messages about how they just have, you know, they're, they're older in, the, in these years of just kind of being a little bit more wise. When you've parented some other kids all the way through, you learn some things. Uh, and just like the intentionality of constantly telling little Noah, you are a love boy. You're a love boy. He called Noah his spiritual director because Noah has started responding to that. You're a love boy with this. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. One of the, some other relatives said, Noah, you're a little boy. And he said, no, I'm not. I'm a love boy, right? It's adorable. Right? You're a love boy. Crystal and I came back from that retreat, just impacted by that, but also, you know, got a sense of humor, so I keep telling my wife, you're a love boy. <laughs> yes, I am, no, <laughs> right? But it's so beautiful, that intentionality. Like, what if we could respond that way when we're met with the reality, God loves you? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. That's who I am. I'm a love boy. I'm a, a love girl, Right? Uh, we're loved by God. He loves you. To just receive that, embrace it, stand proudly in it, not based on your pride, but on the love of God. Yes, I am. Remembering and recounting the ways that he has loved you throughout your life, that's the way we fight apathy and move towards increasing affection for the Lord and for others. So how has he loved you? What has he seen you through that you had no business making it through? 
What, what good things has he brought into your life that you have no business enjoying? How has he given you the opposite of what you deserve? Even the most difficult of times, there are still things that we can point to and say, see, he loves me. He loves me. The people Malachi was writing to and speaking to were, were waiting for the Messiah to come. But we have the privilege of knowing that he has come. We can look to Jesus and we can remember his cross and his empty tomb and know without a shadow of a doubt that he has loved us and he loves us still and he will always love us. May his love move us from apathy to affection, from going through the motions to passionately living for him in every way possible. Let's pray. Our Father, would you help us to see beyond a shadow of a doubt how you have loved us? Jesus, help us remember how you have loved us and lived and died and were raised for us that we might be your people. Holy Spirit, fill our hearts with the love of God in Christ for us so that the apathy might be driven out of us and that we might be filled with a deeper and deeper affection for you, Lord. Enable us to daily remember and recount your love, that our lives might be gripped with and empowered by your love, that we might live our lives knowing that we are loved people, forgiven of all of our sins, declared righteous because of the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Help us live in light of your love and your grace and excited to share it with others, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.